0: The Gospel of John, chapter 4, which is on page 1053 in your pew Bible. We pick up our story today halfway through a conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We studied the first part of that conversation last Sunday as Jesus asked her for a drink and talked about the living water. And by the end of it, she ended up asking him for a drink. Now we continue that conversation today. But just to remind us all of the whole context, let me uh, read John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It says, Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, the time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, who speak to you, am He. Oh, this poor woman. She just wanted to get some water. She had a bunch of stuff to do. Had to go get water. So she gets there with her jug or bucket or skin or whatever she had. And then this strange Jewish guy that she doesn't know starts chatting her up. And the next thing you know, she's in some vague theological conversation about living water. And a few sentences later, she's asking him to give her a drink of living water. You know, it's such a strange reversal of of events here it starts off with jesus saying could you give me a drink and in a few sentences later she's saying i'll take some living water could you give me a drink i bet when she got up that morning that's not the conversation she was expecting she was going to be having that afternoon or that noon at the well but you know it strikes me that that is how god works that god sneaks up on us that god starts working in our lives long before we realize he's working in our lives and and, and he moves in ways that surprise us, and we find ourselves suddenly asking questions that perhaps we hadn't been earlier. Questions about who he is. Is there a God? Uh, is there a heaven? If so, how do you get there? You know, questions like that that maybe a week before we weren't asking, and now we find ourselves asking. Sometimes God does this by upsetting things in our lives. We have our lives nicely laid out and planned and everything is in its place and there's a place for everything and then god comes along and he takes the big board game of our life that with all the pieces laid out and he just throws it over and all the pieces fly on the floor and and it upsets our world and we start asking those big questions why is this happening maybe i should pray is there someone to pray to does prayer even work is there a god if so is he there is there an afterlife and and these questions start rolling out of our minds. Sometimes it's not that, that, that everything gets upset. Sometimes life is fine. Everything is as it should be. And yet there's a, a kind of growing doubt somewhere deep in our minds, a little splinter in our minds that says, is this really all there is? Is there not something more? Is this really what life is about? And as a result, we begin asking those questions, even though it seems like we shouldn't be asking those questions. I had a friend I have a friend named Matt and uh, Matt was telling me how he became a Christian. And in Matt's story, he was raised in a a, a very sort of traditional church going home where they went every Sunday and it was what the family did and and Sunday for 1 hour was faithful church attendance. Everyone was expected to be there. But one Sunday was over, it was about well, the American dream and you know, God helps those who help themselves and just work hard and and make money and live your life. And then, you know, once a week you go and you do church. And that that, that church attendance was seen as, you know, doing your duty and kind of checking that box in your spiritual life, all right? Went to church, I should be set with the whole God thing. And so for Matt, religion was something that was very wrapped up in a box on a shelf with a bow on it, put away in its place. He had that kind of solved... But God, in his mysterious way, turned some things over in Matt's life. One of the things that affected him was uh, when when he was a child, he had uh, two of his siblings. He had nine siblings. Two of them died. And that raised questions. And the church said, don't worry. Those kids had their sacraments. They're in the church. The church is all set. You're all set. Don't worry about it. The afterlife is tucked away with a bow all set. But he wondered, is that really true? Is, Is my church attendance and, and sort of the religious rituals I've done, is that enough? He had a growing sense in his own heart that that he wasn't a righteous person, that he was a sinful person. And he didn't know how to deal with that and didn't, didn't know if, if his religious observance was adequate to make up for the continual, what he says, wickedness that he saw in his own self. And so he wrestled with this through college and... Uh, and, and just couldn't have peace about it. And one day at college, God surprised him. He was walking across campus and there was this guy who would uh, set up on the, uh, the, the, church, uh, the, uh, the college library steps and he would just preach from the Bible. He was a street preacher. And this guy had been there for years and people, college students would gather around and listen and ridicule him and jeer him from the, from the ground as he preached away from his Bible. And sometimes Matt would join them. But this time it was different. Matt stopped, he listened, he sat on the grass, he skipped lunch, he skipped the class after lunch, and he continued to listen as this man went on preaching from God's Word. He didn't expect to be there. And so, this is what God does. We, we, we think life is a certain way, and in a short time, God brings us to a different place. I mean, look, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and you're in a Baptist church, why are you in a Baptist church on Super Bowl Sunday? Isn't that weird? But here we are. You'd think we'd have other things to do. You'd think we'd be home, you know, roasting the pig on the spit or, you know, deep fat frying 100 pounds of wings or whatever you're going to do. But here we are. Like, wh- wh- how does God get us to these places? It, it's mysterious how the Lord works. And so this woman found herself in a conversation with Jesus that she wasn't expecting so let's just pick up this kind of unexpected conversation where God has found her, God has engaged her, Jesus is there talking to her. And just to remind us from last week, uh, Jesus tells her about the living water, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsting again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman finds herself asking for it. She says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's intrigued. She's been pulled in. God has repositioned her and repositioned the conversation. And I love how Jesus responds, verse 16. He says, Go, call your husband and come back. Isn't that a weird thing to say at that point in the conversation? Yeah, I'm thirsty. Okay, living water sounds great. Give me some. Sure, go call your husband. Now, now why, would, why did he say that? You know, imagine in an alternate world, you're having a religious spiritual conversation with a friend from New England. I know that's another universe. It doesn't really happen here. But in an alternate world, you're having a religious conversation. And imagine in this alternate world, maybe this is a further alternate world, that person is actually interested and they actually say to you something like, look, just tell me how to know God. Tell me how to have my sins forgiven. How can I be saved? How can I get the living water? Like, what would you say to that person in that that moment? You you know, how would you respond to somebody who was like, just give me the bottom line. What do I need to do to know God? I want the living water. What would you say? I bet you wouldn't say, go call your husband. It's it's kind of a strange pivot in the conversation. Did Jesus just figure, ah, if you get your husband, then I can witness the two of you? No, he had a different purpose. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So what Jesus has done is He has put His finger on the issue of sin in her life. He, he has said, you know... You want the living water okay i'm going to show you that there's a deeper need there's a deeper issue and the need is that you have a sinful life that you're a sinner in need of a savior and and so he puts his finger right on that issue in this case what he points attention to is is not only this sort of series of relationships a woman has but the fact that she's currently living in sin with some guy The man you now have is not your husband. In fact, the Greek is a little bit ambiguous. You know, the Greek word for husband and the Greek word for man is the same word. So you could translate this. It's unclear which it is. You could translate this. The fact is you've had five men, and the man you now have is not your man. (laughs) You know, it's not your husband. So so it's unclear whether she's had five marriages or she's just been in five ongoing sort of, you, you know, sinful relationships where she's been living with some person you know so it's it's kind of ambiguous but the point is that jesus is putting his finger on her need for a savior he's showing her that she is a sinner in need of a savior and this is painful but you have to understand that when god starts to work in your life when god starts moving in your life at some point in that experience he is going to bring up the issue of sin it's going to happen. And it has to happen. Because he's like a surgeon. He's like a doctor. And, and if he's going to change our lives and change our hearts, at some point a good doctor is going to sit down and be like, okay, let me tell you what the test results say. You don't want a doctor who never tells you the bad news. You don't want a doctor who, who never says, look, I know what the problem is. And so here's Jesus saying, look, I know you want living water. I know you want eternal life. You're interested, I can tell. Okay, well, let's get down to the deeper issue. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. It it is that sin-identifying work. And when that starts happening in your life, however it happens, however God brings it about, don't freak out. Don't run and hide. Just go with it because this is all part of the process. We have to come to terms with the fact that our hearts have been pointed away from God and pointed toward ourselves. That our our deepest desires are for our own self-righteousness, our own happiness, our own sin, rather than toward Jesus in the Gospel. And so when God works in your life, there is a a convicting that He has to do. There is an awareness that has to happen. And so she's been made aware of this. Hey, you've had five husbands. and, And it shocks her. My friend um, Matt, as he was wrestling with his sin, that, that's what it was that, that he was struggling with was this fact that, uh, that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. And, and even though he was being told that, you know, hey, your, your religious behavior is enough, it's good enough, don't worry about it. In fact, he would go to his priests and other religious leaders and tell them about the struggle he was having with sin, and they would just tell him, you know, you're being too hard on yourself. You know what you need? You need to love yourself more. And so he said, I'd go home, and I'd give myself a mental hug. You know, I love me. I'm awesome. And then he's like, no, I'm not awesome. <laughs> There's still, still a problem. No matter how much I affirm myself, there, there is this issue of sin in my life that I can't evade. So Jesus has put his finger on the problem for this woman. But notice the other thing that happens. Not only has he revealed the woman's true spiritual condition, but in the process, he's also revealed something about himself. So in that little conversation, get your husband, I have no husband, you're right, you've had five, neither got another one who's not your husband, you're right, it's true. Notice that he reveals the woman and exposes her, but he's also laid down some of his own cards. Because she says in verse 19, Sir, the woman says, I can see that you are a prophet. How did you know that about me? You must be a prophet. We have never even met, and you're telling me stuff that you should have no knowledge about. And and so she's rattled, and she realizes he's some kind of prophet. And this is what happens, is that not only does God begin to show you yourself as he works in your life, but then you start to realize that God is real and that He's able to show you things about yourself. And that's a little freaky. It's, it's God's, you realize God is a judge, that God sees things and He reveals things. It's like the spotlight shines down on your life and you have this sense that God is pointing things out, that He's bringing about coincidences and things in your life to keep showing you His reality. I'm telling you people, I wish I had a dollar bill every time at the end of a sermon, somebody said to me, pastor, I felt like you were talking directly to me. How did you know that? Did you have microphones in our family's car when we were driving to church today? Were you at the dinner table behind us at the restaurant last night over here? How did you know that's going on in my life? You no, I, I hear that all the time. It's so funny, after the first service, people came out and they're handing me dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> I just put them in the offering plate, just so you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I wish I could keep alive some kind of mystique that I have supernatural knowledge of you, but I really don't. I mean, what do I know? I, don't, I, I hardly even understand myself, let alone anyone else. All it is is, this, here's the secret, I'm just preaching the Bible Just keeping the Bible out there, pointing to the Bible. And what happens is, is the Holy Spirit uses God's Word to, to personalize His Word for each of your hearts and minds in a way that no preacher could do, even with a super complex surveillance system and supercomputer. You know, the Holy Spirit just spreads out His Word and applies it. What's happening is, is that Jesus Christ is alive you know we say he's risen from the dead but like no he's risen from the dead the same Jesus who sat there reading this woman's mind is the same Jesus who is now risen Lord of heaven and earth and through his spirit and his word he is still doing this convicting revealing exposing work today through his word just as much as he did as he sat next to the woman at the well and, and he does it whenever his word is open. He does it whether a pastor is opening the Bible in a, a service or whether you're just sitting down reading the Bible to somebody or teaching it to little kids, you know, or, or, or reading it to a friend at work. You know, whenever this book is open and God's word is opened, his spirit can use it and move through it to do this exposing work. Let me read you a little bit more from my friend Matt's testimony. It's a great testimony. So he sat there listening to this preacher, and he says, As the man preached, two things struck me. First, he appeared to be happy. Second, he used God's Word to describe me in a way no one ever had. Instead of blowing sunshine in my ear about how I'm basically good and worthy of self-love, he told me that I was bad at the core. He told me that I was dead and always will be because of my sin, the sin that warred within me. I had never met this guy and yet his words ripped off the pretense of my outer shell and exposed my innermost thoughts. He explained the division between my head and my heart. Sitting there on that hot day in September 1984, surrounded by many of my fellow students, I felt oddly conspicuous. Have you ever felt oddly conspicuous because of God's work in your life? It makes you realize who you really are, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. But it also makes you realize who God is, that He knows and He sees, and He, he sees through all the pretenses. You know, this woman says, I have no husband. Like, that's like half true, right? <laughs> she only said half part of the truth. And, and you know, that, like she said something that was true, but she left out a lot of details. Like, you know, teenagers, that works on your parents sometimes. Spouses, that works on your other spouse sometimes. That never works on God. (laughs) Never works. He sees through it all. He sees us and knows us better than we know ourselves. So the woman responds, verse 19, I see you're a prophet. Then she says, verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So here's another odd pivot in the conversation. The first kind of pivot was, go tell your husband. And now he tells her about herself and she says, you're a prophet. And then she starts talking this question about where the right place to worship was. See, there was a a debate between Samaritans and Jews about the right place to worship. The Samaritans thought the right place to worship God was at at the foot of uh, the eastern side of a, a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is kind of in the center of Israel in the, the heart of Samaria at that time. And, and that's where they believe you should worship God. The Jews, of course, as was just read in the Scripture reading, believed you should worship in Jerusalem. The reason they had this debate in part was because the Samaritans only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were God's Word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when you look in those first five books, one of the main places where people worship was Mount Gerizim. Uh, when Abraham first came to the Promised Land, he set up his first, temp, his first altar in Shechem, which is a city at the foot of Mount Gerizim. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, when you enter the promised land, build an altar at the foot of Mount Gerizim. So if you just had the first five books of the Bible and you had to say, where's the right place to worship God in, in uh, the Bible, in, in Israel, you'd probably have to say, probably Mount Gerizim. But the Jews believed the rest of the Old Testament was God's word. And clearly, as we just read in 2 Chronicles, God identified Jerusalem as the place where his temple was to be built. So the Samaritans and the Jews had a major theological difference that had major worship implications. And one said worship here, one said worship there. So why does the lady bring this up? You know, Jesus is getting to the nub of her issue and she says, ah, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. You know, this, this is a worship debate. And often it's, it's sort of said that the reason she brings this up is she's trying to change the topic because she's uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever had those conversations where you're starting to talk about the Lord, talk about Jesus. You could tell the other person's uncomfortable so they throw up a smoke screen. Oh, yeah, but what about the, uh, what about the dinosaurs, you know? Like wh- when did they live? And, um, you know, how did they get on the ark, you know? Explain that one to me. It's like, you don't care about dinosaurs. Oh, come on. You really care about, no, you don't. Like, you're just smoke screening me. So maybe she's just smoke screening right here. Or maybe another way to look at it is that she's convicted. She realizes that she's in the presence of a prophet who can tell her the truth. And she really wants to know now all right, so how, how do I get right with God? Where do I go? I mean, I, I would probably just go to my temple in Samaria, but the person who's a prophet is a Jew, so maybe the Jews have something to tell me. I'm confused. So, so we don't know if, if her motives are defensive or if she's seeking genuine information. But whatever's going on in her head is secondary to the answer that Jesus gives. That's the important thing. Verse 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, Time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Something is about to happen that is going to completely reformat the way we approach God. Could you imagine how radical it would be for a Jewish rabbi to say, Jerusalem's not going to matter anymore? That would be like cataclysmic. Jerusalem, that's not going to matter That's not where to worship God. Are you kidding me? Wow, something's about to change in how we worship God. And then he throws in this little side note in verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So just side note, you know the debate, Samaritans and Jews? The Jews are right. But, doesn't matter. It's academic. Because something's about to change that'll make that whole debate really pointless. Because look, verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come. Now it's here. It's right in front of you. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So now it's not about Jerusalem versus samaria it's about spirit and truth so when you find yourself surprisingly intrigued by questions about god that maybe you weren't asking before and then you find yourself convicted and realize that god is doing a deeper work in your life that you really are a sinner in need of a savior and that there's something to this and then you start asking okay so now what what do i do here's the answer We need to become people who worship God in spirit and in truth. In fact, it's not just an option. It's not just a best practice kind of thing. It is the only way that God accepts. Look again at verse 24. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jerusalem and and Samaria, it's not just that they're kind of inferior or not as good. It's that that doesn't count anymore. What counts is spirit and truth worship. Which then raises the question, what in the world is he talking about? I should really understand worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because if I don't understand that, and that's what God is looking for from me, that's a problem. So let me understand what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth. So, so let me break these two phrases down, spirit and truth. But before I do, just a quick caveat, they go together. All right, Spirit and truth, two things, but they're fused. So whatever it means, you can't have one without the other. It's not like, well, how was church today? It was pretty good. We worshiped in spirit, but not so much in truth. It does not compute. You know, it's spirit and truth. In Greek, it's one preposition, in, followed by two nouns. When you have in Greek grammar a preposition with two nouns, that means the nouns are to be taken together because the preposition governs both of them. So it's in spirit and truth, not in spirit and in truth. It's, it's, that's a little important thing there. So they go together. Sorry, so what are they? Well, what's spirit? One way to take worshiping God in spirit, one way to take that word spirit, is to take spirit as referring to the, the heart, the, 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 the internal person. In other words, I'm worshiping God with my spirit. I'm worshiping him sincerely from the heart. That's one way you could take this. Uh, There are a couple places in John where it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit or he knew something in his spirit. So maybe what Jesus is saying here is that true worshipers, it's no longer focused on location, it's now focused on the heart. You have to have a heart that's really worshiping God. It has to be internal. It has to be something in here, not something out there. The problem with that is, uh, well, one problem is that even in the Old Testament when they had to worship in Jerusalem, they still had to worship from the heart. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a false dichotomy to say, in the Old Testament, they worshiped at a place, Jerusalem. In the New Testament, they worshiped from the heart. They, worship, they were supposed to worship from the heart in the Old Testament. You know, God uh, castigates his people saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He wanted their hearts in the Old Testament too. Not only that, but I think the bigger problem with that interpretation is that most in almost every occurrence in the Gospel of John, the word spirit refers to, The Holy Spirit. That's the most common usage of this word. In fact, in every occurrence of the word spirit up to this point in the Gospel of John, it has referred to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John chapter 4, in our text, right in verses 7 to 15 that we studied last Sunday, Jesus is talking about living water, and we saw that living water is a way of talking about the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but in chapter 4, verse 24, right in the passage we're studying, it says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So there's some connection between God and who he is as spirit, as opposed to to flesh, he's spirit, and then us worshiping in spirit. And, And so it's something about God's spirit and our spirit that's being implied here. Not only that... But you see that phrase, spirit and truth? Later on in the gospel, we'll read it in a few minutes, uh, we see that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. So there's a close association between Spirit, the Holy Spirit and truth. And so the spirit of truth, and here it's spirit and truth. So all that taking together, it just seems that the most likely interpretation is he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to worship God, you've got to worship in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Or to put it this way, if you really want to worship God in a way that's acceptable to Him, if you're an intrigued, convicted person who's saying, what what do I need? The answer is, to worship God, you've got to have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're going to worship God in a way that's acceptable to Him, that makes God say, this is the worship I want, it must be because the Spirit of God is living in you and is enabling you and making that worship happen. You have to have the Spirit of God to worship God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, it doesn't matter if you, you know, uh, have a really beautiful liturgy or you light candles when you worship or you have a really nice singing voice. Th- those things don't matter. It's do you have the Spirit? It's the Spirit of Christ living in you. We worship by the Spirit. This sounds vaguely familiar. It reminds me of the conversation in John chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. Interesting, two back to back dialogues between two people. One is Jesus and this dirty Samaritan woman who's got wacky theology, the other, John chapter 3, between Jesus and Nicodemus. A, uh, you know, neat and tidy Pharisee who had his theology all lined up the right way. But in both of them, Jesus is saying, you need the Holy Spirit. With the woman, he says, you got to worship in spirit and in truth. With Nicodemus, what language did he use? You must be born again. But it's the same thing. Look at John 3.3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must be born again. You must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. So being born again is equivalent to being born of the Holy Spirit symbolized by water. He's, that's what you need. So so to really enter God's kingdom, I must be born again. What does it mean to be born again, just to remind you? It's a work of the Holy Spirit where He changes your heart, where He he changes your heart from the inside out, and He changes the disposition of your spiritual nature from being self-focused, self-righteous, sin-focused, to loving Christ and loving God and and worshiping Him. It's a change of the desires and the orientation of your heart from from desiring this world to all those songs we were just singing. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. You cannot really sing that song from the gut unless you're born again. That is the cry of the born-again soul. Hallelujah, all I have is Jesus. I'm sick. I lost my job. I've got problems. But thank God I have Jesus, and that's everything. You don't say that unless God changes your mind to say that. And so there has to be this transformation inside of you to make you love the Lord and to love His Son. And the point is, this is something that God has to do. There's no 30-day learn-to-love-Jesus curriculum you, you either love Christ as Savior and Lord, or you don't. And it's something that God does. It's, it's amazing. It's miraculous. You say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never be a Christian. <laughs> For me to become a Christian, that would take a miracle. Exactly. <laughs> the, that's how I became a Christian. It was a miracle. It was just a miracle of God's grace. How does anyone become a Christian? It's a miracle. God... Does radical heart surgery. Heart of stone, gone. Heart of flesh, inserted. You know, And I'm a new person and I love the Lord Jesus. That's how the preacher told Matt it had to be. The preacher went on to say that my dead self, this is Matt's testimony, my dead self needed to be born again. He said I needed a new life because I had offended God by my sin and that my self-righteousness had earned me In eternity apart from God, I was bound for hell. We need God to change our hearts. So it must be spirit worship, worship that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit's life transforming power in our souls. But then it also must be in truth, spirit and truth. These two go together. So, what is truth? What does that mean to worship God in truth? The true way, according to truth? I mean, what is that? It can kind of go in a lot of directions. Can I just show you one passage. Look at John 15:26. Here's one of those passages where Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. Really interesting. We'll eventually get to John 15 one of these years. But Jesus says when the counselor comes, John 15:26, when the counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth, who goes out from the world, He will testify about me. So the Spirit is turning the heart and He's pointing towards something. He's bringing truth about something. And He's going to point us toward who? Jesus Christ. The Spirit testifies about Jesus I'd like to suggest that the truth is Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the Word of God. In other words, uh, we learned that in John chapter 1. He is God's self-revelation. God has been revealing Himself. He's been speaking truth about who God is to let us know who He is. And the ultimate revelation of God's truth about Himself is the Son. So that when you look at Jesus, you are seeing the truth about God. He is the self-revelation of the Father. So much so that Jesus could say things like, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I mean, that's either like crazy talk that needs to be laughed out of town, or it's something that we need to fall on our faces and worship. It's so extreme to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What? That's either so heretical or so amazingly true, I need to get on my knees and bow down. It's one or the other. Jesus said, if you accept me, you accept the Father who sent me. If you reject me, you reject the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the truth about God. We wonder, you know, what religion is true? There's Catholic, there's Protestant. Even in Protestant, there's Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian. There's all these different religions. I don't know what to believe. Who knows? Maybe it's just whatever you want it to be. And Jesus steps into the, the, the chaos and the confusion of the postmodern world and, and all of the pluralism we experience and wrestle with, and he says, I am the truth. If you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus He is the true revelation. That is what he claimed about himself. You see, I I, I can't believe that. Yeah, you're right. You can't. First, you have to be born again. (laughs) And when you're born again, you suddenly say, oh, he's the truth. I see it now. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? I'd like to suggest it means Trinitarian worship. Where the Father sends His Spirit into my soul to change me and help me see. And what is it that I see? I see Jesus. And I worship Jesus because in Him I'm seeing the Father. And so the Father sends the Spirit that helps me see Christ because in Christ there's the Father. And so I'm caught into this wonderful revelation of the Trinity as each part does its work in my life. That's why you must worship in spirit and in truth, because otherwise you're, you're worshiping who knows what you're worshiping. It is only if God opens my heart, and only if he points me to Jesus Christ, who is the truth. That's true worship, to worship in spirit and in truth. To me, that, that this is the foundation for thinking about our worship together as a church. You know, we gather on Sunday morning here. We have a worship service did we really worship? How do you know if we worshiped? I not know, that's kind of an interesting question. What's real worship? Did we worship if we sang uh, the great awe-inspiring hymns of the faith from a deep organ that inspired reverence and awe? Oh, that was worship. Or is it worship if there's some person just going at it on the guitar and every eye is closed and every hand is raised and everyone's just singing like that. Oh, that was worship. I think the real question is, first of all, are these people saved? If they're not saved, it's not real worship. And if they're saved, were they focused on Jesus? And to me, the rest is, is it's interesting. There's stuff to debate, but it's really secondary. Put me among a saved group of people who are worshiping Jesus and I know I'm in real worship because it's spirit and truth. It's about Christ. That's where we need to keep our focus is on Him by the power of God. And somehow it got through to the woman. Somehow she was getting it by God's grace. And so just to draw this to a close, John four twenty five. the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. This is a rare moment in the Gospels where Jesus explicitly identifies himself as the Messiah. So often he keeps it quiet. But here the woman's like, I know the Messiah's coming, and Jesus says, Yep. You're talking to him, lady. Right here. Like, Wow, what a moment. What I want to suggest today is that as God is working in your life, as He is confronting you, as He is convicting you, as He is calling you to be a true worshiper, that ultimately that same Jesus is here with us saying, I am He. For those of us who are Christians, we lose our way, we get distracted with the busyness of life and with complacency and sin creeps back into our life. And again, God confronts us again and even as Christians draws us back in again and we realize I need to be worshiping Christ by the power of the Spirit and Jesus is there saying, I am He. So what do I do if I feel like God's working in my life? Man, look to Jesus. He's the one. And He's the one who can change our hearts and He's the one who can show us the Father. So may we continue as a congregation to be a place where Jesus dwells, where Jesus is central, and where people, sinners and saints alike, are continually coming here to meet with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You, and the fact that we can even say that is a miracle. Thank You for the miracle of putting love for You in our hearts. God, thank You for saving us from self-love and from sin love. God, thank You for saving us and just giving us a love for You and a love for our neighbor. It's a miracle how You've changed us. And Lord, we just pray that this church would be filled with the Holy Spirit and would be filled with a love for Christ and that that desire to honor Christ in all we do would permeate this congregation through and through. That regardless of how big it is or small it is, or what building we're in, that what would be palpable here would be a sense that the Messiah is here, sitting with us, revealing Himself to us, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time. How, Lord Jesus, we need to hear those words every week, I am He. God, give us faith to believe in You. This week we pray in Christ's name, amen.